the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to end our weeks when we can with one of my favorite uh, academics and public intellectuals, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When we talk about a lot of the crud and rot that's going on in our universities, uh, this is one you don't have to worry about, especially under the stewardship and with the great faculty Pete uh, administers and has put together. Pete, happy Friday and welcome back. Yes, happy Friday, Seth. Great to be with you. Have you all at Pepperdine had your commencement exercises just yet? We did, actually, uh, albeit socially distanced and masked up. Uh, but outdoors, we had our first commencement exercise in two years. No kidding. Uh, last Friday. and uh, Good speaker? Uh, we actually just went with an alumni speaker okay. um, who happens to be a local uh, city council member. It was really kind of a in some ways an intimate gathering there, but it was really very much alumni and, and graduate focus. So it was, Do you remember uh, your commencement speaker from college? I do, actually, yeah. as it happens. Uh, so I, uh, undergrad, uh, was um, Daniel Inouye, yes, senator sure. from Hawaii. Right, World War II so, veteran, one arm. Yes. Yeah, lost an arm in the war, didn't he, or something? Yeah, he yeah. Uh, yeah, he definitely had some yeah. injuries yeah. still from the war. Yeah, and, uh, wow. Okay, so that was your undergrad. You, did you remember another one you said? Yeah, I'm tr- oh, and my graduation speaker yeah. uh, for graduate school yeah. was Ed Meese, the no great kidding. Ed Meese. No kidding. So, um, no kidding. I've, I've been... Uh, I've been fortunate to And the have, two of uh, them would have interacted heavily yes. in 86 and 87 during Iran-Contra, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, Inouye was sure. one of the stars for the Democrats for Iran-Contra, and Ed Meese was at the time, I guess, the Attorney General of the United States, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fantastic, that's right. fantastic. Well, that's not; those aren't bad speakers. Mine have been no. uniformly bad. Uh, um <laughs> With one exception, that was an interesting one and maybe a sign of the times. There's a small chance you'll know this name because you were into music, albeit ska. He was a yeah. jazz critic named Nat Hentoff. Oh, yeah. Remember Nat sure. Hentoff from yeah. The Village Voice? Yeah, yeah. Now, Nat yep. Hentoff was in – this was law school in Boston, um, Pete – and he uh, was as liberal as they come. He wrote for the Village Voice. His credentials were pretty good. But guess what? He had one big problem uh, for my college after they hired him to do our commencement speech. You know what the problem was? The problem was he wrote a column where he said he was pro-life. And the students went ape crazy and almost canceled him, almost canceled him. And that, I think, was a sign of things to come. Yeah, it was. An early yeah. sign of things to come. One deviation from the party line, and you're done. Yeah. Never mind the years of progressive work 
under your yeah. belt. One deviation, and uh, and you're out. Um, mm. and, and and that seems so much the uh, so much the uh, the predicate uh, back then in the '90s for what we're seeing now. Do, yeah, it is. Do you do you give advice? A lot of advice uh, to 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 college graduates. I did a on air commencement address earlier, and I'm wondering if you have chunks of advice, sayings, or thoughts you like to convey to high school graduates or college graduates or um, graduate graduates, graduate student graduates. Um, yeah. If you, yeah, well, I'd love to know what, what you do. Different messages, yeah. Uh, yeah. right? I mean, obviously, in, in high school, you're you're thinking about uh, whether and when to go to college, and I, I think those are legitimate uh, questions. Um, so, you know, obviously, you're speaking at that level. For college graduates, um, my advice is usually, although the pressure feels so great, is to never treat that first job as if it's going to be your only job. Correct. Um, as we both know, all the data shows that uh, most Americans uh, change jobs between 10 and 15 times over a career, and there can be then career changes um, within that as well. So. Um, not to be, not to think that that first job is a, is a be all and end all. Um, for the graduate students here, uh, you know, they've already made the selection. Uh, all of our students, politics or policy in some way, shape or form. And so at this point, you're, you're being much more specific and, and trying to be directly helpful in uh, where they're getting that first position. I mean, we, we do a, a lot of work on the career services side, making sure that we're matching uh, graduates with, with great opportunities and to use our own networks to do that. And so um, in that way, we're, we're becoming, you know, much more personally related to the students and following them along as they go on their, on their career track. So you can be certainly more definitive there um, in, in understanding that actually your first position is going to be pretty pivotal um, to, to your future. Pete, do you, um, do you think that in some respects the main message that you get at these commencement addresses is as awful as I think, which is this message that um, – Usually it's not said as bluntly as this, but this certainly is underlining it uh, or, 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 back, or watermarking it, and that is you can yeah. be anything you want. Yeah. The yeah. other one that I have so much problem, so much trouble with, and we may we may not agree on this, mm. is the encouragement to do what you love. And I'll yeah. tell you, I have a little problem with that, only in that yeah. I, I think it sets up a false expectation. Yeah. No, I think I most people treat work. Uh, this is I'm, this is a, this is a great question I want to throw your way because I think most people may have this idea of having a job that they love and that they get fulfillment from, but I actually think most people, and by most like ninety percent, think of their job as their way to pay their rent or their mortgage and for yeah. their children's education, and that they should get their fulfillment elsewhere. You tell me. No, I, A, I think that's fair, and B, usually the perception of the ideal job that is going to uh, create these immensely high levels of, of self-realization <laughs> is usually based on uh, bad information, um, right? It's, it's based on a, 
on a perception of what it's going to be like to uh, even in our line of work, right, where people, uh, students come to us and say, oh, I'm, I just know that working at the State Department is my dream job. Uh-huh. And then you ask them, well, so what do you know specifically about working? At, well, you just get to travel and, mm-hmm. you know, you're working on major peace treaties. And, you, well, you know, let's let's walk this through, and that may be a place at some point, but there are stages along the way, right, um, that usually the, the, the dream job that people hold is, is in some ways an idealized version of that, and, and it, certainly there may be parts of that that are realized over time, but to your point, you know, the, the first stages can be um, for lack of a, a better term, fairly menial, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so you better you better not be holding out that that dream job needs to be realized immediately. Yeah, and it doesn't certainly have to be your first job. Yeah, yeah. I, and I would also say, too, just actually to both your points, uh, which I agree with, uh, because it, it strikes me one of the one of the themes that we propound here at the policy school is that it is about calling. Uh, I do believe in that sense of of calling now that that understanding in the christian world although there's certainly a secular understanding to it is that there's a a mixture of traits interests and opportunities that coalesce uh and can be realized either in a job or in a hobby or interest um and that for our students to think specifically about the calling to public service and what that what that means um, is is super important to us because you know you'll go through a lot if you believe you're doing what you're called to do. Um, and, whereas in in some ways, if you're if you're thinking about a job as a, a sort of means to an end uh, or an idealized version of a particular career, uh, that can lead to burnout really quickly when those um, when those goals are not realized in the in the time frame that you've you've you set for yourself, Pete, I I, I wonder if I can um, I can keep you a while, can't I? I'd yeah. love to if I can. Yep. Thank you. Can I have you talk a little bit about what you mean by called uh, yeah. when we come back? Um, and I want to ask you a little bit about what I think the impression most have of 20 and 30-something. Yeah, 20 or 30-somethings, those finishing college, thinking graduate school and that sort of thing. I guess that's 2030s for the most part, although I know it can yep. be older. Um, the assumption that most people think they're probably calling, they're called to, to the environment or racism. And I'm wondering if we can talk mm. about what you see. Mm. Yes, yep. when we come back. Yeah. I'll be right back with Pete Peterson from Pe- Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You can follow him on Twitter, at Pete, the number 4CA, at Pete4CA. Pete, just before the break, you were talking about advice you give graduates into things that they think of as a calling or that you train them into going into things that might be uh, where they feel called to uh, apply their uh, apply the gifts that they've picked up at places like Pepperdine, uh, what are they called to? If you were to ask most non-academics what they think twenty and thirty somethings 
uh, are interested in when it comes to public policy. And if you were to use the word called, I think they'd probably say, oh, they're going to work on environmental issues or race. Um, How much of that do you see? What are other examples or perhaps even better ones? Well, I guess I'd back up a second to say, to further define what I mean by calling, right? It's it's, um, an understanding that uh, someone can, both through introspection, but also within community, whether that's family or friends, an analysis of one's own skills and abilities, along with opportunities that can present themselves, uh, or not, right, doors opening or closing, that one can perceive uh, more of a a straight line in a uh, career in a particular direction, right? So, for example, I, we probably told this, I probably told the story before on your show that first 15 years of my life, I was working in marketing, printing, advertising in New York. This was after the SCA career. That's that's right. Okay. Yes, I'm I'm one of those that the uh, you know of the twelve different careers. I, okay. I can say Good. that this Good. you know Good. I may be on the higher Good. end. Um, but suffice it to say, I went through nine eleven uh-huh. in New York, and that was a, an experience that, for reasons I can't even to this day fully uh, or clearly describe. I can only say that. Being in New York on that day, I knew that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing for what I hoped was another 30 or 35 years of a career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was only the beginning step towards learning and reading uh, those that had written about calling. You know, folks like Oz Guinness, his book, The Call, had mm-hmm. uh, such a deep impact on my own life and my career. Uh, but then asking questions, both of myself and friends, to say, "Hey, you know, just something's not not feeling right. It's you know, it's a comfortable career that I have, but it doesn't feel like it's me." And mm-hmm. I know that sounds very squishy, but that's those were the questions I was really asking myself. And what I heard feeding back to me was that, you know, Pete, if if you want to explore this, then probably going back to school is going to be a way to understand, one, you'll come out with a degree, but B, you'll come out with a with a clearer understanding of what your next step should be. And of course, that, that brought me back to graduate school at the ripe old age of 39. Ever since has been a, a real pivot in my own career. And so can the calling, you know, back to your original place, uh, uh, description could that be towards a specific set of issues of course it can um i would just say that for many of our students um well and we saw it nationally right the the what happened after 9-11 with people getting a sense of you know the call to public service where people went into the military and intelligence services and other areas of public service we're seeing the same thing now in the wake of the pandemic. I mean, we are we are more than double our admitted students nope. this year over last year. Even. No kidding. And uh, I can only chalk that up to, and you you see it in some of the applications that you get, where students say, you know, I was all ready to go in this particular kind of private sector direction, but when this hit and certain things happened, I realized that. 
public policy actually <laughs> life, and I wanted to play a role in helping to shape it. And uh, I think that can be the beginning stage of of asking some deeper questions about who you are and and what you're looking to do either with your career or hobbies or interests. When you went to graduate school or back to school at age 39, is that what you said, 39? I think yeah. you said 39. Yeah. When you went back to graduate school at 39, were you at all surprised uh, or shocked uh, at the um, at the attitude uh, in the academy? Had it changed much since you had recalled it uh, from, uh, I don't know, uh, what, uh, uh, 20 years earlier? Well, you know, I didn't. And I'll say where the, when the transition happened. But when I came back after being out of a classroom for 18 years, it was I chose to come to Pepperdine because I knew that uh, temperamentally, ideologically, it fit with who I was. Okay. And I was looking at schools back east to go to and kind of thought, you know, I'm going to have to kind of grit my teeth to get through the program to get on to what I wanted to do. I know when I saw Pepperdine and their curriculum and who was teaching here, that I was like, wow, I, I actually enjoy it. It's not as if you went to read graduates. <laughs> That's, okay. right. right. That's right. Or Evergreen State. Or right, 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 yeah. right, right. So, but where I really learned it is when I became dean. Okay. Uh, which is five years ago. And when I became dean and started interviewing and speaking to really smart undergrads that we were recruiting to come here and started to hear some of the stories, and then I would go out on the recruiting trail and speak on college campuses and especially speak to conservative groups and hear some of the things that were going on. So this now is just really in the last five years or so, I realized how dramatically different the experiences of these students have been versus what I had gone through as an undergrad uh, back in the late 80s. Which is what I did. I think we're roughly yeah. roughly the same age. You had the same experience yeah. I did. That experience, by the way, uh, could be roughly characterized as heavy liberal bent, yep. though no real cancel culture, no right. real free speech problem, no real conservative presence, except here and there, a faculty member on an occasional poli-sci department, maybe if you're lucky. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and But those things have changed. That oh, All of that goodness. has changed. What was free speech and minimal conservatism is now non-free speech and zero conservative professors. Except Pepperdine, not Pepperdine. Yeah, and you describe it well. I mean, I never felt that. Hold hold that real. Hold that thought real quick. Let me let me do this on the other side of the break because I want to talk about if it can go one way, can it go back? Can we bring it back to to what we had? I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We'll be right back. Oh, by the way, for our May 25th Crisis at the Border event with Mike Gallagher, Andy Biggs, me, and Seb Gorka. Next Tuesday, May 25th, here in Scottsdale, I'll give two tickets away to the next caller, 602-508-0960. Our promotions manager was nice enough to give me some tickets to give away that we isolated, and there are others available still at 960thepatriot.com as well.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, where they do it right over there. My gosh, uh, you look at um, uh, who founded that school and who's teaching at it, and certainly Pete Peterson, who's leading it, publicpolicy.pepperdine.org. Edu, uh, Pete. Uh, the campus, the upper, the uh, upper echelons of education, college and higher ed, changed uh, radically and dramatically from what you and I described as our experience in the late '80s, early '90s, to yep. um, to where it is today. We could yep. speak freely, think freely, fairly pursue whatever we wanted to debate, argue. Um, shoot the uh, sh- shoot the breeze in any direction it, it blew. Shoot yep. at it in any direction it blew. Usually without much conservative faculty, a smattering here and there. Now, mm-hmm. now totally no faculty on our side. Now at most schools, now no speech, no letter rip, no pursue anything you want. It changed rather dramatically. Can it go back? Yep. Well, it's going to be a very slow process. Um, all the data that I look at, and I give a fair amount of talk uh, talks on campuses and to donor groups about the challenge, shows that the uh, number and percentage of progressive faculty um, across the country in most of the major at least social science areas. If you're an engineer, <laughs> you're, you're probably you're going to have a pretty good experience yes, if you're right. a conservative. Sure. Um, you know, those we, we've had this process set up whereby, and we, we just had this actually, Seth, with one of our first-year students who came to us from UC San Diego, came to us, definitely wanted to go work in government, but after his first year here, he said... Uh, you know, I always kind of thought that I wanted to go into academia and get a Ph.D., but after kind of keeping my head down for four years at the UC school, I just thought, why would I want to put myself through five years of this to get a Ph.D. and go into a world like this? But after his first year here, he said, you know, I didn't know you could actually have an experience in a classroom and talk about politics and political philosophy and economics and actually not feel like you have to squelch yourself. Mm-hmm. And so if... It's kind of reawakened um, an earlier passion he had. Unfortunately, we've had we have millions of conservative kids that are going into college that uh, a decent percentage of them would do very well going into PhD programs, but because of their experience, they very rationally say, "Why would I want to go through five, six more years of this to get a PhD?" And only then. Going go into a field that is really so ideologically slanted and. Unless and until we're able to begin to bend that curve back, um, and I'm, I'm seeing glimmers of hope, especially as philanthropy is getting more involved, I think, in finding those oases uh, where students can have a good experience throughout their Ph.D. training. Uh, but that's what it's going to take. Glimmers of hope uh, is, interest, is, an, is an interesting way to put it because what worries me is that we do see these glimmers here and there. Maybe there was one at UNC and Nicole Hannah-Jones. Maybe that was a small little something with donors having a voice on sanity, perhaps. Uh, But what I find the greatest of challenges is that the elementary schools have now followed the the trajectory of the colleges. Why wouldn't they? Um, They want to give the colleges what the colleges want to take. 
Yeah. Obviously, right? Uh, there is a, a natural supply and demand here. Yeah. And the virtue of elementary and secondary education is, in a sense, it's more democratically yeah. run. If it's public yeah. schools, there is at least the theory that people can run for school board and promote the right curriculum. Correct? You, you, yeah. you can't do that with most state universities or private right. colleges. Yeah. No, that's right. Although I think what we've seen here in California with the example of uh, the mandated ethnic studies curriculum uh, is a window into how far left and how ideological the field of education has become. Mm -hmm. And so where are our teachers coming from? Our Mm -hmm. teachers are coming and administrators. They're Mm -hmm. coming out of these schools of education, which certainly seen as more left of center, but to your point, they were still made responsible to democratic institutions mm-hmm. at more local levels. Mm-hmm. They've become so ideological um, that I'm sure you covered the story here. The, the first issue of the proposed ethnic studies curriculum for California came out three years ago, and it was so left-wing that the L.A. Times came out again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do uh, remember Governor covering Newsom, that. Yeah. Governor Newsom sent the State Board of Education back to say, you've got to do, you've right. try this again. Right. But what was made evident was that there were a group of education so-called experts that actually thought this was a good idea. Yes. That, that, that's, that, that's right. <laughs> that, that's yeah. actually an interesting. Can I put you on hold and, and, and pick yeah. up? All right. We'll be right back with more from Pete Peterson, dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Maybe only in academia. We're talking with Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Um, and, uh, and and Dean Peterson, we were just talking about curriculum changing in the academic uh, environments, higher education, as well as elementary, secondary. And the standards that were proposed in California that even the L.A. Times thought went too far. One thing, and there's your glimmer of hope, but as you say – um, the worrisome thing is that there are people who believe this crud, this rot, uh, credentialed, important people who believe crazy things that only could be believed in an academy. Yeah, right. It's um, it is a it is a challenge, and as we were talking about this greater issue of viewpoint diversity. It's I, I where I am seeing hope, as I said, is that. Uh, Better networks are growing, right, Good. That where you're beginning to see conservative academics uh, find the places where if they want to encourage a young student who is interested in a, in a career uh, to go on for a Ph.D., you know, there are ways that you can obtain that without having to uh, completely um, silence your conservative impulses when it comes to the things you want to write about, research on, Good. and so forth. Good. But it certainly takes quite a bit of work uh, to, to accomplish that. Talk to me about something that looks really interesting I saw on your Twitter feed about training the uh, California police chiefs. We're all, uh, all always constantly have in mind the uh, safety and support of our law enforcement. Yeah. And it uh, looks like you were leading a lecture in front of them. What were you talking to them about? Yeah, so we uh, have an institute here 
local government leadership and process called the Davenport Institute. And I still, I used to head that up before becoming dean here, and I still do a fair amount of training. The Institute has trained over four or 5,000 local government officials around the state and around the country and how to lead more effective public process. And that particular tweet was from a session that I led, uh, co-led the California Police Chiefs Association on public process and community relations. And uh, we've been training with the California Police Chiefs now for about five years. And, uh, you know, it was one of our first in-person trainings uh, since everything that's happened last summer and certainly through the fall. Can you tell a um, difference in the attitude and approach of the students when they are police yeah, as opposed so to are, before last year? Yeah, so the, this particular session is is really for higher-level officers, Good. those yeah. who are one step away from being chiefs. and yeah. Definitely these are people that are um, just incredible public servants, uh, the things that they're having to consider and uh, engage on and issues around the whole defund the police movements that are happening, not only in big cities, but also in small ones, um, is is really um, just an incredible challenge. And uh, and so I'm. it's an honor for us uh, to be an accredited tra- uh, trainer for the California Police Chiefs Association. Fantastic. Good for you. Uh, Pete, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about it, but I know you're, uh, you're, you must be sensitive to it in the academy and in Southern California where you are. There seems uh, to be, as words come out of your mouth, sometimes you wish it was not so late to stop them. It's not, it seems. There is a sincere and serious uprising in anti-Semitism in places like yeah. Southern California, New York, Florida, Pete. It's a weird thing because uh, we have been sensitized to um, discriminatory violence against various minorities in this country, first blacks, then Asians, over the last year and a half. And the media propelled um, to a fairly well those stories, even to the point where they didn't exist, exploiting some hoaxes. Awfully quiet about what's going on right now when it comes to anti-Semitism, though. Are you noticing the same silence? Absolutely right. And it's happening, as you said, it's happening here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. We've had some instances uh, here, and uh, they are not being reported. Uh, as you well know, what's going on in Israel now mm-hmm. uh, with with uh, some of the, frankly, the hate crimes that are being perpetrated on, on Jewish Israelis. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not seeing the same the same level of, of coverage here on on the issue of anti-Semitism, nor did we hear much when the, I think, very legitimate discussions around hate crimes uh, had been raised uh, within the last year and certainly within the last few months. But putting that in context with anti-Semitism, which remains such a significant part of the broader subject of hate crimes, and I think the loss of that context and the continuing challenges that that uh, that our Jewish brothers and sisters face um, is is one that really needs to be highlighted and understood. And certainly now that we're seeing this, what appears to be a wave, uh, 
covered and responded to. Uh, thank you for that, Pete. I also, before we go, I let you go. I didn't tell you I was going to do this either. Uh, <laughs> but as a um, former professional musician, I wanted to get your um, credentialed opinion on my producer's <laughs> 500, top 100, 500 top rock songs of all time. Oh. It has, in the top 16, in the first 16, it has yeah. nine Rush songs. This is an amazingly weak or shallow top rock list of 500 songs, isn't it? Why he makes this list, we don't know. He says it's fun and it's cool. I don't know if we have the same dictionary. But what do you say where nine out of the 16 top songs are Rush? I can see two or three. Right. Is there a Clash? Is there at least one Clash song in there? Is there a Clash song, Bill? Bill, is there a Clash song? Oh, sorry, Pete. No clash. No, oh, not even Pete, rock now, the Casbah. Now, now what, you're with What do you me. recommend? Not, yeah, not even rock the Casbah. <laughs> oh, well, um, Pete, uh, job listing for a new producer, I suppose, is one <laughs> one way we can conclude. <laughs> Anyone in Pepperdine Public Policy want to go into producing no a radio show? No one could replace Bill. No one could replace. Have a Bill. beautiful and blessed weekend, my dear friend. You too, Seth. God Great bless to be with you. you. Thanks for spending some of your week with us. Boy, that Rush thing got a lot of responses. Uh, Best Rush song, New World Man. One listener writes in, YYZ. There's just a lot to this, but I'm going to close the show with something Chuck Colson said at a commencement address I was privileged to see on C-SPAN just by walking by the TV once and knowing that if Chuck Colson was on, it's worth listening to. It was a graduation speech he gave, a commencement speech, where he was talking about the importance of character, and he closed his speech by telling the students at Geneva College that um, whether it's in the military or in business or in your churches or whatever walk of life, it's your character that's going to matter. Someone is going to depend more on your character than your IQ. Build and develop your character. How do you do it? Well, we have the greatest message of all, Chuck Colson says. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Respect others. Speak the truth. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Act justly. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think on those things. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Who may live on your holy hill, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath, his word, even when it hurts, Stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the cause of the widow. It's really not much harder than that. Until Monday, have a blessed weekend. God bless you all, and class dismissed.